Blog Talk Radio. Gates. Fantasy, adventure, and dystopia are among the words that help describe the work of my two guests this evening. S.T. Hoover and Farrell are authors of their own books, different yet with some parallels. S.T. is the author of Siron, a kaiju thriller, while Farrell brings us Mothma. Prepare for a step into two different worlds on our program. Welcome to the show, both of you. Hi. Hi. Uh, Well, let's see. I first met the two of you uh, last year at Cleveland Concoction, and I'm going to be ashamed to admit that I couldn't quite remember you at first. I had to have my memory jogged, and you um, visited the bookshop, and you were kind enough to buy my first book, Parasite Girls, which I thank you for. And um, we were all supposed to be there this year, and unfortunately with COVID-19, that kind of put a kibosh on things. But I'm glad we were able to get hold of you for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, last year we were not vending at Cleveland Concoction. We were there as guests, but we had a really good time, and we are also very sad that we could not actually vend there this year. Yeah, it was kind of like uh, I had never been before, so I still didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But um, the panels were were fantastic, and just meeting so many really cool and, and different people. And it was wasn't just the authors; it was the gamers, the cosplayers, and stuff. So yeah, it was it was an awful lot of fun. Yeah, I'd be of the mindset that to, that you you've probably had a little more experience in those than I have. I only started doing those a couple of years ago. Um, no. Yeah, that that. Now, we've been doing, like, we've been going to, like, very small cons in the Canton area, but that Cleveland Concoction was actually our first quote-unquote major con. We've been to, like, Odd Mall and such, which are bigger shows, but we never, like, basically we'd only gone to Odd Mall up until Concoction. And the only reason we did Concoction to go up there was um, I found out Scott Sigler was going to be there, and I'd always wanted to meet him and thank him because his advice kind of set me on this path to, you know, so, actually uh, writing my books. So shout out to Scott Sigler. He's a oh, really yeah. cool guy. Very fantastic yep, I, author. Yeah, real ni- he was real nice to me, too. I really appreciated meeting him. Well, usually I will begin with the books, but I want to start with the two of you. Tell us about your beginnings, each of you, and, and what brought you uh, onto the writing path and that sort of thing. All right, ladies first. So go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. We have fun here. Yeah, our sense of humor, you'll, you'll, there's, we're, we're screwed up. We're screwed up a lot of ways. Well, aren't we um, all? It, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's funny because, at least with my writing start, it kind of paralleled with meeting Farrell in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, 
I'll say this right now. I was not a I, – I still don't have a great grasp on the English language, and even in middle school, I was lucky if I could read, let alone write. I had so, some, what, so what was your first language? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Probably Japanese because I watched so much Godzilla movies, and this is why we're here today, isn't it? But, ah, so it is now. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. But anyway, so I'd started writing um, just little stories and stuff when I was younger. And then a character popped up that has remained to this day after a few iterations. His name was Michael Ridding. Um, and he's the subject of my first two books that were eventually published. But so what happened was through middle school and high school, I experimented with writing. I had different ideas, and I got, like, one thing published out of the blue that I still can't find anymore. <laughs> it was like a poem of all things that got published, and I just kind of mm-hmm. submitted it on a whim because I liked the person putting it together, and they were like, this is great. Put it in. So I didn't think it was great, but it's in there somewhere. Um, but so when I uh, when I graduated – um, the first thing I did, one of the first things was I moved out to Ohio because I, I was born and raised in Southern California, and we're talking Disneyland area. Like okay. we were close enough to hear the, we were close enough to hear the fireworks at night and see them occasionally. Okay, so you lived um, in like so we Anaheim were, or right around there. Yeah, we lived just out. We we live right around Anaheim. We were in um, a little area called Yorba Linda, actually. Yorba Linda, yep. right okay. by um, Placentia. So um, I moved here to Ohio, and um, within a year I did something which I know wasn't wasn't really possible in California was I bought a house outright. Mm-hmm. So I never, I never thought that was possible. But after I did that, um, luckily, you know, I'd had some money saved, but about the same time, um, I was having issues at my job that it's just, we'll be here for an hour if I have to explain them. But um, okay. <laughs> basically, I decided I wanted to. I decided to leave the job because, however much I liked it, they were just making it. They were turning it into an environment that wasn't what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I left also because Farrell was moving in with me to avoid um, mm-hmm. the dorms, which had been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Nobody was really willing to help her out with that. But mm-hmm. so she moved in with me. Um, and then we neither of us had a license at the time, neither of us had a car, so we had to ride the bus. Um, or she would have had to ride the bus three hours one way just to get to uh just to get to Akron for her classes. Oh, and I rode on it once to judge. I'd never been on a bus before and after all the debacles I saw I was like, I'm not letting you ride these things alone yet. So it kinda worked mm-hmm. out. So I, I drove I rode up to University of Akron with Farrell in the What's the building? Uh, Polsky. Polsky building. And while I was there. It was a repurposed, like, 1960s department store that turned into, like, the (laughs) STEM department. Yeah. So that was where I learned where the mezzanine was. That was where I hung out all the time. Is that where I wrote the books? No. Okay. Well, um, (laughs) I went there, and we had just gotten back from – 
from a trip from California again, just to see family after that job went. Cause I, I had no idea what was coming next. I was kind of lost. Um, cause my, my dad had died the year previous. And mm-hmm. so I was really, he died at like 44 of heart failure, congestive heart failure. Wow. And that really, that really rocked me because mm-hmm. I know health wise, I'm not on the greatest track already. I've already got to wear, they've already told me I need a sleep apnea machine at 24. So Yeesh. that, that, that's really, that really kind of set me off and said, you know, I look back at some of the stuff my, uh, well, when I was in California, I did two things. I look back at some of the stuff my family had the opportunity to do, but something always tended to stop them or get in the way. Like my grandpa going to be a big league pitcher. Um, the Indians actually were interested in him. Um, they were drafting and such. Um, I don't, I can't give you the full specs on that one, but he, uh, he was going to do it. And then Vietnam and he got drafted. Mm. Then um, my dad um, was going to be the drummer for No Doubt, among other larger bands, when he was in California. He was a fantastic drummer. So I still don't know how he could do that with how bad his health was, but he could rock out. Mm-hmm. And um, that didn't end up happening. Um, and this was before they were big. This was like, they went to school with like Gwen Stefani, my parents. So anyway, that did end up happening, and they weren't able to do a lot of the other things they wanted to for various reasons. Um, and so I kind of looked at that and while I was in California, I was getting inspiration for another Michael Ridding book because mm-hmm. I kind of put the character to bed. I, I wrote him like a little story where he had a happy ending, but it wasn't really the character that I, I knew him as. It was sort of like a rebirth situ- situation where it wasn't really the same guy. Um, mm-hmm. so I said, you know what? I got an idea for a new Michael Ridding story. I'm going to try and write a novel length piece. And, um, I did. I wrote a thirty thousand word long first draft, which for me that was big. And then I wrote another one back to back. I wrote the first two books first drafts back to back, and then got halfway through the third before I realized I needed a break. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, the short version is, um, thanks to some opportunities Farrell got. Um, and some opportunities I had, we were able to support ourselves while I was basically being full-time writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I was – during that time, I was very still, like, protective of my work and didn't, like – I probably could have published a lot of other things, but I was so, like, defensive of it and didn't really want to, like, publish something that was subpar. So I found um, some authors that I know um, and admired, like um, – I won't go too far into detail with this, but um, have you heard of uh, Joanna Penn? She has a she has a blog talk radio show, I think, as well. Yes, I have. Yeah, I um I got to work with some of the people she works with to make her books what they are. They'd never take me, but they read my first book and said, "Okay, we'll we'll work with you." And um, I was able to found my own publishing house and publish Farrell's first book, the first two Dencom books. Now an anthology and Mothma and Siren, which were actually the same day. So right. I am still, I'm still technically doing this as full part-time gig because after we got married, it was kind of agreed upon that my wife does not want to clean a house ever again. She would rather work and just go to sleep and work. So it's my job to keep up the house and 
she's giving me a dirty look because I'm not great at it either, but I'm still better than you at it. <laughs> this, this, is, this is recordable. This is recorded evidence that he said that. Yeah. I, I'm going I'm well, to go back and I'm going to play that for him when he denies it. Yeah. But anyway. well, right now, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But so that's kind of where we are. Um, so Siron is the latest, and uh, we can talk more about that when we get in there. But I've taken enough time, Farrell. You, yeah. you, you tell them what's up. All right, so you are next, in the but... five minutes that we have left. <laughs> but um, I cut out a lot, too. You know that. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I've lived in Ohio all my life. Um, okay. Question, the beginnings of Question Mark, I, uh, Question Mark is my first book, a uh, like a little short story collection, um, very, very heavily inspired by the classic Twilight Zone series. Um, I really respected the, like, the amount of variety that they could put in. Like, it wasn't the alien episode over and over and over again. Like, they right. did, like, they had a variety of subjects and tones and styles that composed that one show. So that is yep. something I wanted to recreate for this book. Um, and so like in my later high school years, I wrote, um, I, I wrote these stories and I think or actually the one, the only one I didn't write in high school was the gad about the first story. I wrote that um, like first semester of college so, and I just spent a lot of time, like, tweaking these, um, getting them up to um, publishable standards. And then um, one of these stories that I wrote that didn't quite make it in was called The Tale of Princess Mothball. And mm-hmm. the book was originally going to be called The Tale of Princess Mothball and Other Stories uh, mm-hmm. before it became question mark. Um so because with the Mothma story, I knew I had something good. Like the characters really stuck with me and like, like the characters, the universe. And I really wanted to expand that uh, past uh, what the short story would allow. So um, I took it out of question mark and I started to develop it as its own thing. Uh, first as a series of short stories and then as a novel. And um, okay. if you're curious, well, if you're curious and want to read the um, the short, the original short story for yourself, um, I put it in um, in context the uh, the anthology that we put out. Uh, that was my piece uh, for that book. Okay. Well, Farrell, this leads me into this fantasy. You've already started to set the table with Mothma. Um, and I see some of the seeds of this idea. You have combined a very interesting thing here with it seems like the human and insect world in a strange political alliance of sorts. Now, the human side I can I can get, but it's like where did the uh, the insect world where Princess Mothma comes from? Where did this come in your uh, creative process? Honestly. Um... Like one of the foundations of the book was I wanted a distinct clash of genres. While the human side was more like, you know, Disney esque fantasy, you know, like cookie cutter pastels gives you diabetes just by looking at it. 
I wanted the bug <laughs> world to be sort of a uh, a counter to that, um, just sort of like like dark, a little more serious, sort of um, like a sci-fi-ish, and it sort of evolved into um, they would be at what we would consider the industrial revolution, where they have they have factories, like they are. Um, Rockshell is a um, their focus is on manufacturing and production, so they have a very um, they have a very blue collar mindset. Um, mm-hmm. Just sort of like these, um, the, the soldiers are, I like I say in the book, the soldiers, the Rockshell soldiers are just like big factory workers who know how to use what they make very well. Because they mm-hmm. take, um, like, they take uh, parts and resources that um, the other clans give them, and then they make uh, weapons and uh, supplies and tools and such. Mm-hmm. So that is now, what, that, that yeah. is what Rockshell does, and that is the background that they come from. I definitely want to ask a little more about her world and the people in it, or the the, the creatures that are in it. The first thing that got me about the story was was kind of a role reversal. Aaron is this prince who, despite adulthood, seems to go through much of the story as a child. And it's funny because I think of one historical figure, I think of Tsar Alexander of Russia. He was a very shielded person. And in fact, his father ascertained that his son would not be ready for political life until he was 30 and so insulated him so completely from it. And Aaron is is very much like that. Yeah. The way I wrote Aaron, it was sort of a statement on censorship. Like Mm -hmm. what, like what, if you took a child and gave them nothing but, watered down fairy tales to read what like mm-hmm. a- absolutely nothing else nothing else of intellectual value if you gave him only that for 20 years and gave him access to nothing else what kind of person would he turn into so that was sort of the direction i wanted to go with aaron mm-hmm. and um and that, yeah 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 and it's like he had such an extreme sensitivity and in that he has this very childish or childlike view of what a prince is supposed to be like, what he is supposed to be like and what his princess, what the woman he is to be married to is supposed to be like. And it's, it, it is a very strange character. Yeah. And I think that's why he is so curious about Mothma, why he's so attracted to her, Um, not just because of physical appearance, but also because of, how not what he expects she is. Like, it's sort of that sort of curiosity that um, she's not quite what he expected, which she also feels toward him, uh, like, as sort of like a, but but more of a scientific mindset. Like, um, he's, he's an inferior specimen that she is very curious about, and that, that won't leave her alone. <laughs> so he may, she may as well mm-hmm. study him. Like that's well, sort there of is, the um, yeah. surface level of the relationship that they have. Very much. There's there's this taming of the shrew kind of thing that's sort yeah, of happening that, that there. Was, that was one 
the that was one of the influences. Mm-hmm. And now we talk about Mothma. She is the queen of Rockshell and essentially is a warrior. And was her was her creation also deliberate in how you brought her out? I mean, such such a polar opposite of Aaron. Yes. Yeah, like I wanted to um like I wanted to take the princess stereotype of, you know, like like helpless, useless, like dumber than a rock, and I wanted to push it to the other extreme. Like basically, um, like taking this kind of character that Mothma is and just sort of like what would and avoiding spoilers as best I can what that kind of character would do in a setting that demands this other character. Hmm. And like how the, how the setting in that universe and that um, mindset of what's to be expected, how that would react to this sort of anomaly. Mm-hmm. And, and there's the in- into, Go ahead. And it turns into a very clockwork orange situation. Um, <laughs> I sort of got that like, feeling as, as as the story got on, it became more and more bizarre. And yes, clockwork orange is a great <laughs> analogy to that. Aaron, Aaron sort of becomes Malcolm McDowell a little bit, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give it all away. That, but yes. Yeah. Um, interesting also with some of the other characters. Um, now, we talk about opposites. Um, I was very intrigued from the start by Mothma's sister, Amber Tread. There seemed to be the stereotype of helpless and meek and everything, and yeah. yet she developed and became very dynamic as time went on. Yeah. She's adorable. Yes. I love that character. She's my favorite. I mean, Mothma's great, but I'm sorry, Amber Tread. I just I just want to hold her and tell her everything's going to be okay, but I know she knows it will be. Yeah. Like Amber Tread, it, um, I, I will say that Amber Tread is one of the real heroes of the story. And mm-hmm. um, I was sort of influenced by um, the, the, the plot structure of Sweeney Todd because your two mm-hmm. main characters are both antagonists. And then in the background, you have the real, the, the real protagonist, you know, doing all the work, like what mm-hmm. what the story would normally focus on, and that's right. the case with um, Amber Tread and Needlefoot. Mm-hmm. And also, yep, yes, exactly. Um, now there was another thing with the names, um, so, like the soldiers in Mothma's army was. They have a lot of similarities, and they're sort of like the names seem to be catchy in certain ways. Did you have a format in picking names? How did you choose them? Honestly, um, and and this was a and this is pretty much across the board for all the um, the rock shell and the bug characters. Aside from Mothma, um, I grew up reading the uh, Warrior Cat series, and they have names mm-hmm. kind of like that. And I wanted to sort of poke fun at that. So <laughs> okay. that, that's sort of the, and I guess it worked a little too well. <laughs> Because that's I cool, though. It, this yeah. is a serious fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because we all use 
we all have something of that sort that we draw on when we when we begin when we we start writing yeah. that sort of thing i mean i i grew up with lord of the rings as a very young child mm-hmm. so it was kind of like i was reading it i was reading the hobbit when i was 9 and lotr when i was 10 so i was into it long before any before it became fashionable and yeah. I know that it made a hell of an impression on me because I look now at some of the things I write and I think I go back to to that, to that some of that sort of expansiveness that Tolkien had. And I know it had a hand in turning me turning into whatever it is I'm still doing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, an interesting thing. Um, uh, the one other question I definitely have about Mothma in its, uh, in its style, there's these... I kept getting these subconscious little currents flowing in my head as I was reading. And I know we've talked a little about it, but there's this deep psychological examination happening. And I was wondering, what sort of reactions have you gotten from Mothma, especially from people who don't know you? Um, I, I put this through a round of beta reading um, mm-hmm. back in 2017. And one of the reactions that I got was that it's a good epic fantasy. So um, I knew that some changes had to be made because I didn't want it to be just a fantasy. I wanted it to be, um, it, it is first and foremost a horror novel. It is supposed to make you uncomfortable. Like if you get, it, like if you get a twist in your gut at certain scenes, then mm-hmm. it's doing its job. Right. It's kind of like um, The Handmaid's Tale. I started watching that recently. Like, if you can't, like, if you want to turn it off, then it's doing its job. And that was mm-hmm. sort of, um, that, that was sort of what I wanted to create with this, is that it's uncomfortable. Um, and there were, there are a couple scenes in the book that make me legitimately uncomfortable. So, um, and there's a lot of like small hints um, occasionally that once you, that may take multiple readings and once you see it, you can't really unsee it. Mm -hmm. That was something that I, I, that's a question that um, I, I like to ask authors because I find that occasionally I will write things that I know to be uncomfortable, either because I have experienced them or I know someone who has. And it is really interesting to me that years after writing something, when I go back and edit, I occasionally will read over something that I wrote, and you would think you have lost your identification with it or you've lost the emotion, and suddenly it comes Mm -hmm. back. And it's like, and I think, okay, if this is doing it to me, then maybe it will do its job with somebody else. Maybe that's that, that's yeah. Th- those are those are normally the best. Um, that's normally the best writing when it can do that to you. Yeah, and you're doing it to yourself, and it's like, oh, yeah. then it must be something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, now I must st- I step back to uh, St. or or Sam. Um, as we are working our way through the program here, we talked briefly about Siron, and I have a couple of questions for some of your other work, but let's get to Siron. Um, this is a deep dive into dystopia, at least for me, and you've brought horror, as we talked about, and adventure together. 
get us to the tell us to the beginning of Cyron because this is quite a start. Um, Cyron, as far as this idea, like mm-hmm. this current iteration came around in twenty early twenty sixteen. I think it was early twenty sixteen because you went. I had to go to Colossus in twenty. 15, and that's when I wrote the first drafts of this, and then Siron started then. Um, Siron was another character that had gone through iterations. This version of the creature, the last versions were like, one was like a Godzilla clone that I wrote for fun, and then there was another one that was aliens before I knew what aliens was. There was one you wrote <laughs> when you were like four years old. <laughs> We, yes, we had, I don't know. We unearthed that recently. I didn't know I'd written that when I was like four or five, but apparently I had, and the name just stuck around, and I always thought it was something that I came up with later and later. But by that time, the book was done, so I was just like, okay, here we go. Let's do this. <laughs> um, so th- this this current version, um, I've been wanting to write kaiju for a while and it wasn't until like um i read books by jeremy robinson that i learned you could actually do it like for some reason in my head i never made that connection that you could tell a kaiju story and make it work Mm -hmm. um whether i did that is up for debate (laughs) i still think there's better writers than me that have done it um Mm -hmm. a lot of better writers but um basically this one sort of came from uh the idea was already brewing to do a kaiju book after reading Project Nemesis and after getting a hold of <coughs> excuse me there was a Godzilla series in the 90s when the 98 movie was coming out um yes. that was classic Godzilla and i read mm-hmm. most of those it took me like i took me a while to get a track get a hold of the fourth book and then i guess the fifth book they'd never published cuz when the 98 movie tanked the publisher decided it wasn't worth it Right. So, um, but so after getting a hold of some of those and um, really, you know, kind of understanding how it could be done, I think I threw a lot of that out the window by the time the book was finished. But um, the second sort of inspiration, because I wanted to make it a rather deep dive into some of these characters and really, you know, I, I like getting into the meat of who my characters are, not always mm-hmm. on the surface. Um. But um, I watched a show um, – again, I found out there was going to be another Godzilla movie, and I mentioned it to a friend at work because um, he, he watched a lot of anime, and apparently there was an anime I thought at that time was called Evangelion, like all yep. movies. But um, I think you know what I'm talking about, Evangelion, right? I do. Yeah, so I – the some of the ideas for this book – started to percolate as soon as the first episode when there's I don't think this is giving it away first episode but during that scene where Shinji is told to get in the robot for the first time and they have to bring Ray out instead and Ray is just wrapped up and in pain just being you know pushed in a in a bed towards the robot you know when, when all that scene starts to unfold started having a lot of ideas how could that go um in a different way. And then did I ever have anything like that in Sauron? It just sort of percolated the idea of that scene. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of when you did. 
I can't remember because you didn't see early drafts of this. I didn't let you see early drafts. Usually I do, but I didn't. For this I think one. I saw the very earliest draft <laughs> when you couldn't. The one that I hand drew that had um, obscenities because I didn't know how to spell the word come here or like come here properly. It's spelled mm. in different ways. <laughs> There's some doozies well, in some of that early stuff. I, I had a lot of uh, spelling problems and I still do. But that's well, why you'll never see me post like early drafts or anything like that. As his unpaid editor, I can confirm. Ah, uh, so, okay. <laughs> but, um, well, listen. I started, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I started having these ideas for the different kaiju and started building the universe as I started learning about YouTubers and kind of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an idea for a book. I don't think um, I don't think it's gonna. I think it just ended up as Siron, but it was gonna be about some of these youtubers or whatever say 20 years in the future when so you know some of them might be washed up some of them might still be doing their thing um but there was going to be like this um it's gonna be like a society or this guy that was hunting them down and killing them and it was going to be like a murder mystery but instead the character that was going to be the main for that turned into jack and siron mm-hmm. built up around it um and originally i didn't have an outline um, when I started, and then I got a few chapters in, and I was like, okay, I need an outline for this book. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I got a few chapters, and I said, okay, I need to outline this and start over again. Right. Um, and during the outlining phase was when I really got I, – I took like two years to write that outline, and I really and got creative with it. That that's the thing that I've I had to learn as well uh, through my writing. I had to learn. I need outline. I need storyline. I need some idea of where I'm going um, because I've I have plunged into projects and then yeah, like you, it's like like three to five chapters in. I'm looking at it and I'm going, what is this and what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> and you the like it is, too much. Not to... always... Yeah. Yeah. You go ahead. Well, for me, the main thing was it was just basically it's like, okay, I need to make sure that this actually makes sense. And I've I've over the years forced myself to just let something cook upstairs in my head for a few months to make sure that the characters seem reasonable no matter what they're doing and that the story makes sense. And also to make sure that I haven't done this already. And uh, as I get older, I'm finding that uh, I take a lot longer to let it cook. So it's like... My last couple of projects that are unpublished have taken each about a year or two to actually get to the point where I say, okay, the outline is done. Now I better write before I really lose this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like what what kind of happens with me with my process is mm-hmm. I'll get you know a ton of separate ideas for like elements and such, but I've always got like the story, and it usually comes to me beginning, middle, and end in my head, mm-hmm. and then – it kind of grows. It's like there's this meteor, there's this planetoid in the universe and all these other ideas come crashing into it and little bits of them got lost in space or make a ring around it, but they're still the main meat of those other elements that eventually just form this whole world that Mm -hmm. eventually becomes the book. And then I could sit there and say, does it need to be outlined or does it not? Because it's not always the case. Like um, with – Michael and Hale, when I first wrote those two books, um, mm-hmm. the most I did, um, when, when I first drafted them, I had no outline. I just I just knew the story in my head immediately. Um, but when I went back and rewrote them, I organized chapters a little bit better. And when I've been writing other projects in that universe, the most I'll do is plan a few chapters ahead because 
that that universe that is you know the universe name in my head we're just going to call it the opus because there's going to be a lot more books to this but um i just call it the opus or what have you but um sort of like stephen king has his universe the opus is mine um but not everything i write takes place in it siron is a completely separate thing Right. But um, like I'll plan a few chapters ahead, and then there's Siron, which is like I'll plan entire conversations and chapters out and write them in advance, and come back to them and retouch them up to make sure they fit the scene. You know, be willing to make changes. And um, mm-hmm, one of the mm-hmm. best things I think I ever did with any book was um, and I asked Scott Sigler about this, and he he really gave me kind of a confusing answer because when I was writing. Michael, I learned not to treat plot holes as a nuisance. I tried to treat them as um, opportunities because when I when I kind of switched gears with that, I was able to solve like two or three problems at once with one change while making the story much more interesting. Like it was something mm-hmm. as simple as the original terrorists and Michael Ridding were terrible shots. <laughs> they were terrible <laughs> at their job, and that helped me develop a backstory for them. And I'll still get, you know, the occasional compliments on them saying, you know, depending on how people feel about Dencom and what Dencom does, they like the villains more than the heroes. <laughs> so I'm kind of proud of that. Well, well, we must talk about Jack. And Jack is female, and Jack strikes me as one of those not completely together characters. And there's this interesting thing that in 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 this entire story, there's there's heroes, anti-heroes, and that sort of thing, and there's no perfect person here. There's some fairly dysfunctional characters, and Jack is right up there. Jack has some demons she's buried. Um, and I wasn't sure... Like, the first initial draft I gave Farrell, those demons were not really as explored. But then right. after I let her read them and I started working with my editor over the course of several other drafts, I worked with them both and it just got more in the more in your face, more in your face, more in your face until I didn't hold anything back because at the time I said, there's not going to be a sequel to this. I'm not doing a sequel. I knew what the ending was. There's no sequel. And now of course, with nothing but time on my hands, I thought of a sequel and maybe I'll write that, but that's another topic. Um, but she, um, she was definitely a kind of shocking character to write for me because I've rarely had a character where I could just sit back and let them tell the story. Like um, I can let them do their own thing and just go. Benedict from Dencom is like that. Um, but this was my first, first person character that really, when I was writing the story, I wasn't really writing it. I was just letting Jack say it as she wanted to, because she'd been gestating in my head for three to four years at that point. Um, and just going for it. And there, there is one element that um, I don't like highlighting this just because, you know, it, it's something that you kind of, you, it's pretty obvious when it opens. Do you know what I'm talking about with, um, with Jack? Yes, yes, yes. You, you, yeah. I understand you don't want to give away too much. I, I, if you're talking about what I think you're talking about, that was indeed, it, it certainly got my – it's sort of like got my attention. Yeah. Um, I guess I can say it because it's back of book now if we're talking about the same yeah. thing, but I'm talking about Jack being a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Well, that was part of it, and, but let's go with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I um, – I, 
well, I've been scared to write a female character because I'm like a 300-pound bearded man. I don't know what it's like to be a college gamer girl. He doesn't even know what it's like to be a gamer. I I play Animal Crossing now. I'm lit. (laughs) I'm with the kids. But especially with, with that sexuality side, I was very nervous because I'm also straight. I have no, you know, I don't feel like I have any insight on that. And basically what ended up happening is I just said, okay, this character wants to be this, and I'm not going to deny them that. Even though, you know, Good. I had said I was never going to write characters like that because I don't know that mindset. But kind of what I learned along the way was it's pretty simple because I just treated it like I would treat, you know, a male character writing about a female character they liked. And I really, I still don't think I did a great job, but apparently. Yeah, like there is no. a scene where um, Jack is talking to her partner for what could possibly be the last time. And uh, honestly, it's one of the best scenes in the book. It is. So it is a great scene. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, thank you. That's all I can really say. <laughs> I, I feel like that I have my own thoughts on all my books. I never think anything is perfect and I always want to go back and do two or three more drafts, but yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting too, because uh, in, without giving everything away with my work, there are gay characters in my books. There are lesbian characters in my books and uh, not all of them, but you know, my early writings. And I have had people ask me the same questions. They've asked me about, for example, uh, my sister loves to love to ask me this question of, why are most of your main characters female? And I thought, well, it's a fair question. And I just felt that for whatever reason, it had to do with those that were around me that I sort of identified with more just as they were my friends. And they were also people that I found more interesting and I just observed more. And I do the same thing with the characters is I just, I don't set out my characters to be this or to be that. It's like, let's just see where they go. And I think that that makes it a lot better. And I think, um, I think we always do tap into what we know or what we have experienced, even if it doesn't get written word for word that way. So that's probably, that may have been what happened. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. In my head, it was just like, I didn't want to call too much attention to it. I'd seen authors that I know that write great books do that. And it just kind of turns into a train wreck. Um, it's, it, mm-hmm. I felt like at that time it was really hard to do. So I just treated it as simply as I could at risk of people saying this woman sounds too much like a man character. That was my mm-hmm. biggest fear when I took that route. But um, Or like this woman character sounds like what a man thinks a woman is. Yeah. Like, cause I, I read some doozies, like, again, from authors I love that are like, the, you know, that do female characters, but when they do, it's like every chapter, whether it's warranted or not, something about boobs. <laughs> just like, just like, how am I going to defeat this monster? I don't know what to do. My boob slipped out. I'll put it back. <laughs> that really was one, um, one incident. Well, um, I read, but um, I, I was I, I, I would assume these things happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, um, yeah. 
Well, there is one thing that that I also noted about the story with with within the characters, but also overall, the book was definitely a page turner for me. And um, the one thing that was set up well was to me is the readers want to know more with each chapter, or at least I think that's what's happening. And um, without giving it all away, there is a really destructive nature to the story. Does that harken back? to say the Godzilla movies because I saw those when I was a kid too or um is there something about it where there is there is a lot of devastation happening or that is it looks like it's going to happen um I, I think I understand what you're saying if I'm clearly not let me know um you, you're talking about like the are you talking about like the internal destruction or like the external destruction more the external Okay. Yeah, when I wrote this, I I really wanted to set off as early as I can that the hope of survival of this is and again, this is early on, but they mm-hmm. they really don't think they're actually going to survive. No nobody thinks they're going to survive this. Um but they want to try. Like it's just human nature. Um there there are people yep. that want to think it'll work, but you know, I mean, it, it's a little. I'm keeping some parts out that are probably not ma- letting this make sense, just for spoiler reasons. Right. But um, you just hear like the first threat that comes around sounds like you know devastating out there, and then another one gets layered on, and you're like, well, how are we going to deal with that? And they're like, I don't know. We're trying to deal with the next thing that's even bigger. Mm-hmm. So, but um, I really did want to create this sense where like. Jack, from the beginning, I really don't know if she's really, like, she says she's fighting to save the world, but I think we know why, back of book, you know, material, it's like her sister is involved in this, that mm-hmm. that whole story is still, you know, a, a whole other thing, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of losing my thoughts here. But It's well, very yeah. much, like, the whole sister aspect, it's very much like The Exorcist. Yeah, The Exorcist mm-hmm. was a big inspiration. Like Evangelion meets The Exorcist is what I tried to do, but um, yeah, well, I, I just have, wanted to I create one, an environment. Yeah, there is one thing about about Siron that came across to me that Siron appeared to be more of a being in search of a host, and it's like, does that does Siron represent or should represent something to the reader? Should it re- represent something other to us that we're not seeing? Do you think? Yes, there's there's something I really wanted to say. It's not – I'll be blunt. It's not a popular message. I don't think that it's one that um, a lot of people are expecting when they hear sort of – I don't want to say her origins, but who she you know tries to be and who she kind of is in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is – you know, if I, if I elaborate, it's spoiler territory, but right, it's right. sort of – like I – you know, I have a lot of thoughts on, you know, the environmental movement and such, and I think that um, I wanted to take some of those tropes and turn them on their heads, mm-hmm. where we kind of look at how the world has handled, you know, what's going on, and basically say what I think is the truth, which is, yeah, we're doing a lot of bad stuff. But the Earth is going to recover. Everybody's all doom and gloom that you know we're destroying the Earth. We're not destroying this planet, guys. It's gone through so much worse than we're ever going to throw at it. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And that and that's one thing that Cylon sort of came into my head as a character, sort of thinking about that and thinking about well, what if it is that way where like this destruction is supposed to happen. So. Mm-hmm. Um, again, again, I know it's not popular, but I like exploring unpopular opinions in my writing, even if I don't There's necessarily believe them. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Well, in the time I have left, I would like to – I'll open these questions to both Farrell and you, Sam. Um, both of you are self-published, and um, this is kind of cool because it's like you have you have creative freedom. And uh, I was wondering, how do you work together uh, as authors? Do you try to coordinate releases? How do you work with one another? Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you mm-hmm. can you can you can deny everything I say, honey. If yeah, you want to. I usually do. Because yeah, should we mention that we're married? <laughs> I think I think we already I think you already did I think you let it slip. Oh, okay, yeah, we're married. If that wasn't made clear. So, um, as far as creatively goes, um, I in the past I've been more overprotective, and I'm trying to let that slip. Like I didn't want to cross certain barriers until we were a little more, you know, had some more books behind us, and I'm now kind of realizing that. I still want to embrace those, especially for, you know, certain um, creative reasons within novels that, you know, it's you nobody will understand what I'm saying there. Maybe sometime in like 10, 20 years, if I'm still alive, you know, in writing, they'll understand. But mm-hmm. um, as far as like just the the way we run this business and the creative side of it, we'll we'll run our books by each other. Um Farrell is more on the editorial side than I am, um, simply because I know she's a better writer than me. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, she's a better writer than me. <laughs> I'll always say that. Um, so I know I can tr- I can usually trust her. She may not always get what I'm going for because mm-hmm. we have some mm-hmm. differences in what we we prefer to do with our characters and our story. But um, and we actually are in the process of writing a book together, and that has sort of opened our eyes to like exactly how different our work process is, how, how different our styles are. What do you mean mm. we're writing this book together currently? I'm done with it. It's been sitting in your hands for a year, and you haven't touched it. Okay, I, seriously, people, if you're waiting for another release, I got one. It's just sitting there. I finished my final draft. I would have sent this thing to an editor a year ago and had it out around now. And that kind of leads me to the other thing you said, coordinating releases. The book comes out when it comes out. Yeah. We really, right now especially, we know nobody cares. It was just a big coincidence that Mothma and Thyron were done at about the same time because Mothma started – much, 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 much earlier than Siron did. This current iteration. This Cyron. current iteration. Yeah, this current iteration. <laughs> Mothma has been around for a while. And yeah, Mothma has been around since like 2013. Yeah, I think All the right. big reason that happened is I, I, I love my main editor, but um, I found somebody that really kind of understood this genre more. He's, you know, he's great for, you know, the Dencom stuff and that sort of style, but I found somebody that kind of knew and had a background in... um this this is the sort of book Siron is, let's just say, more on the horror side. Right. Yeah, and if our book if our book numbers um indicate anything, um, like his release 
notoriously slow writer. Like I just have so much mm-hmm. else. I'm juggling so much else. Yeah, just to so. sort of sort of finish my thought. Basically, the only reason these two came out is because I used a different editor for this one. She was able to get my editor to work on Mothmaw. Mm-hmm. So they were both ready about the same time, and we just – I was actually going to wait and publish Siren around the time Kong versus Godzilla came out to see if I could get some traction. And then it was supposed to come out um, in March. Then they moved it to November before this whole thing even started, so they kind of dodged a bullet there early. But um, I just kind of said, you know what, this book, I'm not going to let it sit here for a year because at that time it was a year out where they'd moved it. I said we're just going to mm-hmm. keep the March release and go for it. So, All right. Well, where can Mothma we? Where can we get? Sorry to interrupt, but where can now? Where can we get your books? Where can we find you uh, online? Um, you go ahead with yours, and I'll do mine next. Um, all of our books are available on Amazon. Um, when things become available on Amazon again, um, paperback and ebook. Um, a couple of our books, um, mainly Question Mark and Michael Ridding, are available um, on Audible as audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and also uh, if you want to read our books much sooner, which much sooner than next year when the paperbacks may inevitably arrive, um, you can also get them as ebooks. Yeah, mm-hmm. like. Um... And as far as my stuff goes, Michael Ridding is free. If you want to download it as part of my mail, like to sign up for my mailing list, you can get that book for free. Um, Siron is 99 cents on Amazon right now. So um, we, we priced it a little lower, and it's still moving steadily, slow but steadily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, basically right now Amazon, most of our shows got canceled this year, so we're not really going to have – when is the next show that's actually not been canceled yet? June. We have a show in June? Yeah. Right before your birthday. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. Well, unless it's canceled. They're yeah. talking about expanding all this. But, yeah. Basically, Amazon, um, Audible, if you want. Audible, or if you want audiobook versions of Question Mark and Michael, you can do that there. All and if you right. Very enough, good. we'll deliver. <laughs> all right well listen <laughs> all right well listen this is uh gonna be uh the end of our time uh my guests today have been Farrell and st hoover author of mothma and siron a kaiju thriller uh respectively this has been a fast hour thank you both so much for your time really appreciate it thank, thank you. you for having us All right. That wraps up another edition of the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guests once again have been S.T. and Farrell Hoover, authors of Siron, a kaiju thriller, and Mothma. I'm Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan, part of the Sweet Dream series, and the coming sequel, Call It Love. Now, I have a programming note. A new anthology is being produced by our parent company, Sunbury Press Books. This will include perspectives, think pieces, and short articles on the coronavirus. After the pandemic, Visions of Life post-COVID-19 is available at sunburypressstore.com slash new releases. We will also have a series of shows on the Blog Talk Radio Network involving the authors who contributed to this series, and that's going to happen this month. We hope you'll check out the anthology and these programs. I'm Tori Gates, and this is the Book Speak Network. Mm-hmm.